talking about Jesus this morning, I want to show you a little picture, if it'll come up here, of something called the Jefferson Bible. It's from Thomas Jefferson, one of our founding fathers. Uh, this one down here in the left is what's called the Jefferson Bible, and that picture up uh, on the right is what's left behind when Thomas Jefferson was compiling his Bible. Uh, he compiled a collection of all of the moral teachings of Jesus, and Jefferson left behind what was unnecessary for him, all of the miracles, including the resurrection. So down here on the lower left, he did this with four different Bibles. He did it with a Bible in French, one in English, uh, one in Latin, and in the Greek New Testament. And so he cut out the moral teaching and left behind the miracles, including the resurrection. And here's what Jefferson said about his collection. This is the most sublime and benevolent code of morals which has ever been offered to man. I would put it another way. Uh, I think Jefferson formed a book that taught Jesus what a neat guy. I think that is the conclusion of, of what Jefferson, uh, what he had put together. And as Garen has been teaching about the idols that impact our lives, I've been thinking more and more about this cut up part, what Jefferson left behind. A clear code of morals will not impact our idols. For me, one of the keys to dealing with idols, those, the, the lesser things that have become more important, more significant in our lives, um, those lesser things that have uh, taken our hearts, I feel like I have had to intensify my focus on Jesus. What did he say? What did he do? And what I continue to discover is this, as I get closer and closer to Jesus, my idols have less and less significance. So this morning, I want us to look at four of the miracles of Jesus in Luke chapter 8, and I want us to see how he makes these miracles both a demonstration of his divine power, but he's also very personal. He's very personal in this demonstration of miracles in Luke chapter 8, and I believe that the big idea that we can come away with this morning is this, the divine power and personal compassion of Jesus can destroy the power of idols that keep us under their spell. So Luke stacks four of these miracles, one after another, in the second half of Luke chapter 8. So I want us to look at a few key verses from each of these four miracles and think about exactly how this reality can affect change in our lives. So, the miracles, demonstrating both the power and compassion of Jesus, start in Luke chapter 8, and they begin with Luke's uh, description of Jesus calming the storm, the first miracle in this series of four. Jesus and the disciples are sailing across the Sea of Galilee, and uh, as they sail across the lake, in this little fishing boat, they uh, are experiencing a violent storm that stirred up the lake. And the text of Luke reads this way, the boat was being swamped and they were in great danger. So let's read together in Luke chapter 8, verses 24 and 25. Here's what Luke 8, 24 and 25 say. 
The disciples, in, in the meantime, as the storm is coming up, Jesus is asleep. The disciples went and awoke him, saying, Master, Master, we are going to drown. And he got up, rebuked the wind and the raging waters, and the storm subsided, and all was calm. Where is your faith? He asked the disciples. Now, it would have been normal for the disciples to have been afraid of the storm. Remember, several of these men are professional fishermen. They have lived their lives on the water, and they knew the the margin between living and dying on the Sea of Galilee better than, than any of us could really understand or imagine. They knew what was at stake. And so when Jesus wakes up and he works this miracle, he stops the waves in mid-course across the deep. When Jesus acts, the very laws of nature bow before him. He demonstrates divine power over the very deep. Now, when Jesus does this, he also makes a very personal connection. Jesus asks the disciples, where is your faith? And I don't believe that he is kind of calling the the disciples out or somehow mocking their weakness or their fear because their fear is grounded in reality. I think Jesus is doing something different. I think when Jesus asks, where is your faith? He's asking the disciples, do you trust me? Do you trust me? And do you believe that your life is safe under my care? The disciples had to feel amazed and fearful about what Jesus has done. But at the same time, Do you think they felt safe as the waves are coming across the sea, as the the boat is about to to swamp? When Jesus speaks, they stop. I think they had to feel that if Jesus is protecting them, what can harm us? That they were indeed safe. Luke follows this miracle with a second miracle when they arrive on the other side of the sea where Jesus casts out demons from a man. When Jesus and the disciples arrive at the other side, they encounter this man who's been possessed by demons. The text says that this man had been possessed for a long time and that his uh, possession had tormented him and tortured him. This man had had wandered naked between the, the tombs and the caves that were carved out of the hills. And so Jesus confronts the demons with the power of his words. And Jesus casts these many demons out of the man. And I want to read with you in uh, verse 35 and then down in verse 38 and 39. This is what happens with this man possessed by many demons. Verse 35 says this, The people went out to see what had happened. And when they came to Jesus, they found the man from whom the demons had gone out, sitting at Jesus' feet, dressed and in his right mind, and they were afraid. Now down to verse 38. The man from whom the demons had gone out begged to go with him, to go back with Jesus. But Jesus sent him away, saying, Return home and tell how much God has done for you. The man went away and told all over town how much Jesus had done for him. These demonic spirits had tortured the man with great power for a long time, but confronted by the Son of God, the demons cower, and they beg for mercy. And everyone in the surrounding community knew that when they saw this man free from the spiritual captivity, 
of those demonic forces that Jesus had demonstrated an unimaginable power. But this demonstration of power is still uniquely personal. Jesus commissions the man to return to the village with this message, tell them what God has done for you. Jesus doesn't show up on the other side of the lake and demonstrate his greatness or or call attention to himself, but he says, go into the village and tell what God has done for you. The third miracle is the healing of a sick woman. Um, Jesus and the disciples sail across the Sea of Galilee. They cast the demons out of the man. They return back to the other side, and upon Jesus' return, he's met by a crowd. And in this crowd, someone comes to Jesus, and he says that the leader of the synagogue nearby, who is a respected man, his daughter is sick. And so Jesus sets off to care for the sick child. Now, while the, the whole group of the disciples and the crowd and Jesus, uh, as they're traveling, another sick person, a sick woman, reaches out to touch Jesus' garment. She believes that this small connection with Jesus will bring her some form of relief that nobody else could could help with her illness. And when she touches Jesus' garment, she's immediately healed. And Jesus knows that this has happened, even though this act of faith is invisible to everyone else in the crowd. So let's read about it in verse 47 and verse 48. Then the woman, seeing that she could not go unnoticed, came trembling and and fell at his feet. In the presence of all the people, she told why she had touched him and how she had been instantly healed. Then he said to her, daughter, your faith has healed you. Go in peace. The sickness of this woman would have made her an outcast in the community. Um, She would have been um, prohibited from joining with the community in worship. It would have been taboo for her to make any kind of a a personal contact with Jesus. So she has several reasons to to be in fear, to tremble in fear before the crowd and before Jesus. What would the community think of her desperate attempt to find healing? What would they have thought that, that perhaps she could have made Jesus unclean? Maybe they would have judged her for slowing down this journey to to care for a respected religious leader. But Jesus, in addition to healing her sickness, gives her a word of welcome and calls her daughter. There's no condemnation. There's only words of acceptance. Then after this, Jesus moves to the very next miracle, bringing life to a dead girl. While Jesus is still talking to the healed woman, the word arrives that the young girl has already died. There's no reason to continue the journey, but Jesus continues declaring to this girl's father, she will be healed. And let's read about that in verse 53 through 56. The people who are gathered together says that they laughed at Jesus. They laughed at him knowing that she was dead. But he took her by the hand and said, my child, get up. Her spirit returned, and at once she stood up, and Jesus told them to give her something to eat. Her parents were astonished, but he ordered them not to tell anyone about what had happened. Jesus demonstrates that even death 
is no match for his divine power. But he doesn't make a show. He doesn't turn attention to his miracle. But instead, he tenderly speaks to this girl, calling her my child. Jesus knows that this miracle is amazing. He tries to keep the news of his miraculous power from spreading. The parents of the girl are astonished. They're amazed. They're beside themselves. No normal explanation for what has happened makes sense. Four miracles, each demonstrating a different form of the divine power of Jesus, but each one personal. So what does this set of miracles, this set of stories have to do with our idols? How does the power and compassion of Jesus help us to deal with idols? The first thing that I would say is that Jesus provides a more worthy beauty. There's one way to to think about this. It's a, a quote from Thomas Chalmers. He's a Scottish preacher from the 1800s. And here's what Thomas Chalmers had to say. The love of the world cannot be expunged by a mere demonstration of the world's worthlessness. Let's stop there for just a second. Remember what Garen has been sharing with us about the, the language for idols. The language for how this plays out is not that there's something evil that we crave, but it's a, a good thing that we over-desire. So the love of the world cannot expunge the world's worthlessness because it's not worthless. It's a good thing that we over-desire. So, The love of the world cannot be expunged by a mere demonstration of the world's worthlessness, but may it not be supplanted by the love of that which is a more more worthy than itself. Our idols are expunged. It's a good Scottish old-fashioned preacher word. Our idols are expunged when we realize that Jesus is more worthy of love than anything else. Said another way by Chalmers, break the hold of the beautiful object by showing something more beautiful. Jesus is that more beautiful vision. For me, I have found a very real connection between the time I've spent meditating on the beauty of Jesus in the Gospels and the drift of my heart towards idols. I want you to picture a a fuel gauge in a car. Um, When I have spent recent quality time reading and thinking deeply about texts like these from Luke, my Jesus tank is way over on full. My tank is on full. I know the beauty and the power and the love of Jesus. But if too much time goes by without my returning to the Gospels, my tank drains. Um, I have a, a Toyota It has a very subtle fuel gauge. It's not like this one with a big orange um, arrow. It doesn't have a blinking yellow light. It just has a, uh, when it gets down to a quarter of a tank, it blinks a little black bar on and off, on and off. So it's kind of subtle. I was driving back here to Emporia from Hayes, Kansas with some college students, and about midnight, in the middle of nowhere, one of the students in the back seat sits up and asks me, how long can you drive your car when the fuel gauge is blinking like that? And my thought was, well, we should run out of gas right about now, because I had no clue 
that it was about to run out. Um, I am thankful, I think, of the Lord's provision that she noticed the fuel gauge and I did not. And then I think the second part of the Lord's provision is there was um, a little gas station open. I don't even know where we were. Somewhere in between here and Hayes in the middle of the night, there happened to be a spot and we filled up. Um, I think that perhaps you and I can find ourselves with a heart that works like that Toyota gas gauge. That we can find ourselves cruising along in life unaware that we've elevated some good things to the place of most important things, turning them into idols, and in the meantime, the impact of the power and the beauty and the love of Jesus is going from three quarters to halfway to quarter tank and then blinking on empty. Jesus is a more worthy beauty. Second thing that I would speak to in terms of application is what I'm going to call the discipline of gospeling. Now, that's not a word. It's a, it's a new Christian word because I'm making it up today. Uh, I'm going to make up this new Christian word called gospeling. Gospeling is the discipline of spending time reading the gospels. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Uh, for years, I, I have a, a Bible reading plan that I follow it is a, a two-year plan that I have, will stretch out to four or five years. I don't know when I'll finish it, um, but it's a, a Bible reading plan. But what I typically do with my Bible reading plan is I, I follow the plan, but I regularly insert a, a discipline of coming back again and again to the Gospels. Uh, I try to read through all the Bible, but one, this one discipline I'm okay at. I'm not very good at reading you know, Old Testament prophets. Uh, I'm not always great at working through Old Testament narrative, but I do a pretty good job of, of inserting the Gospels into what I'm reading. And here's a few of the things that have happened for me as I do that year after year after year. I still cry when I read the story of the prodigal son, that a, a father like our Heavenly Father would lovingly embrace and welcome prodigals like us. I don't know, for the hundredth time I read that story and it still impacts my, my heart. I still get anxious when I read a text like Luke 9.51, which says this, when the days drew near for him to be taken up, he set his face to go to Jerusalem. Jesus sets his face to go up towards Jerusalem, and I get anxious on the morning when I read a text like that because I know what happens next. The arrest, the trial, the crucifixion, and I still feel an emotional connection to Jesus taking that step on our behalf. Sometimes I just overlook an obvious truth when I've read it in the Gospels the first 20 times I read it, and it makes sense on the 21st time. Those are some of the things that I have discovered I think are helpful for me in keeping the habit of reading the Gospels because it keeps me reflecting on the beauty of Jesus. A third idea of application, when we spend time reflecting on the beauty of Jesus in the Gospels, it gives us a reason to think about our actions. When Jesus led the disciples to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, where they encountered that demon-possessed man. They are in Gentile territory. 
If you remember the parts of the story that I didn't read, Jesus casts these demons out into a, a gathering of pigs that were raised there in the hills. So you have a, a sense. This is really like the first missionary journey. Jesus takes the disciples and he says, we're going into to pagan territory. We're going into occupied territory. Can you imagine this man who's had the demons cast out of him, once enslaved to demons, now set free? Can you imagine him forgetting the face of Jesus? Can you imagine him worshiping the pagan idols that were present in the community around him? Can you imagine him returning to the dark life among the tombs? If he did return to those old ways, what would rescue him? Rules and religion and morality would not have shaken him out of it. I believe that only remembering Jesus, his words, his face, his power, and his love would have done the trick. My thorniest, trickiest idols are the ones that come up when I'm on autopilot, when I'm not thinking about my decision-making, when I'm not thinking, when I'm unaware, when I forget the face of Jesus, I start to mull over the good that I imagine I deserve some more of. I think about the difficulties that I don't deserve, and on autopilot, I can pursue inappropriate ways of escaping from those feelings. I can pursue inappropriate comforts out of reflex, out of autopilot. I exert control over all of the world around me. Um, I can act like a zombie, autopilot, unthinking. And instead of like zombies, you know, in those movies, they stumble around looking for brains to consume. I, on autopilot, stumble around life thinking about who will like me, who will approve of me, who will respect me. And I don't think about that behavior just on autopilot. The beauty of Jesus gives us a reason to think about our actions, to think about our choices. Last thought for you in closing, two actually, two last thoughts. The beauty of Jesus for his um, miracle power, for his personal activity in the world to impact our lives and to impact our idols, two assumptions have to be true. The first assumption is you have to know Jesus Christ as your Savior and Lord. Um, we might, it'd be easy to gloss over this, but the most powerful and personal miracle of Jesus wasn't casting out demons. It wasn't bringing healing. Um, his most powerful and most personal miracle was his victory over death and his resurrection, his victory over our sin. Only the grace of salvation can provide us with hope for victory over our idols. Apart from Jesus, each and every one of us is a powerless slave to our idols. In Romans 6, Paul says it this way, that without Jesus, people will be slaves to impurity and to ever-increasing wickedness. Those things result in death. The miracle of salvation is more powerful than any idol, and it's freely available to us all. That has to be true for the beauty of Jesus to do any work in our hearts. The second thing that has to be true for Jesus to transform our idol worship is this, that you are not trying to contain Jesus in some small, 
controllable part of your life. There's a powerful little booklet called My Heart, Christ's Home by Robert Boyd Munger, and it describes the foolishness of trying to contain Jesus to the front room of our hearts while we push our idols into a a back closet where we think he won't notice them. We sometimes think that we need to only make part of our lives accessible to Jesus. If our heart is like a house, we say to Jesus, this part of my life, Sunday morning, my, my religious thoughts, this part of my life is my favorite room. I'm sure, Jesus, you'll be pleased with what you find here in this part of my heart. Unfortunately, when we live that way, there is a stench that pervades the whole house. And it comes from the rotten things left over from the old life. And Jesus desires that we grant him access, not just to the parts of our hearts that are um, open to him, but to all of ourselves. When we give him the key to access um, all of our lives, he has the power to address what we are powerless to deal with. The man set free from demons doesn't need to go back into the caves. The woman healed from bleeding doesn't need to return to being an outcast. And the child brought back to life does not climb back onto the funeral mat. Look at him when you long for something else. As your sinful nature tempts you to turn to the idol, ask the Holy Spirit who resides in us to magnify the love of the Savior Jesus. In Jesus, we have the ultimate love, comfort, acceptance, approval, and purpose that we can find in this life. Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, thank you that you see fit to give your son Jesus all power in this life, but also all compassion and and love for us. Father, I thank you that his um, miraculous work of living a sinless life and and dying a death that we deserve offers us freedom and acceptance and a way to be in right relationship with you. Father, I pray that, that that beauty, the beauty of the power and compassion of Jesus would put to death the idols, the good things that we over desire in this life. Father, I pray that the beauty and compassion of Jesus would put our idols to death and that we would live lives enamored by the beauty and love of your son, Jesus. Amen. Well, guys, that's what I've got for you this morning. May your eyes be turned to the beauty of Jesus this week. You're dismissed.